Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Good morning. You know, I was just thinking, it's a privilege to be a part of Grace Church, and we should never really take it for granted, should we, the freedom we have to worship God corporately and to gather together and hear his word. It's a real privilege, isn't it? All right, so we're looking at this uh, passage today on children and something really central to the Christian life for us to gain from this. Um, we're pausing our series on Isaiah, Isaiah uh, to, to do this. Uh, because of this Thanksgiving service and because of how relevant it is for us. And so I'm going to read this passage again. Uh, I know Mike just read it. Let's read it again. It's very short. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed a child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So Jesus tells us here in this passage that we must change and become like little children. It's not just a suggestion. It's it's critical. It's a command. It's it's essential to even entering God's kingdom. So how are we to become like little children? Is it irresponsibility? Uh, This characterised my childhood and even probably my teenage years and probably early 20s as well was irresponsibility. Uh, We need to tell people sometimes that they need to grow up and this process for me took too many years. Uh, When I was at uni, uh, I lived with a bunch of mates and... Uh, my mother and sister came to visit one afternoon and they were so disgusted by the squalor of the place that they spent the whole afternoon cleaning. That was the kind of attitude that I had and responsibility I had at the time. We had so many drinking glasses that we decided at one point we needed to get rid of some because we never washed up and so we just kept using clean ones and by the time we ran out, there were so many glasses, there was too much work to do. So irresponsibility characterised my childhood. I'm not sure about yours. But obviously that's not the way we're to be like children. You know, the Bible draws a distinction between childlike and childish. And if you have a look at 1 Corinthians 13, 11, you'll see this. It says here that we need to throw off childish attitudes and behaviour. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I put childish ways behind me. So obviously there's a difference here between kind of childish behaviour and the childlike disposition that Jesus is talking about. Well, what is this attribute then he's talking about? We often talk about childlike faith and that is connected to it. But what does Jesus say in the passage is this key central attribute necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven and make someone the greatest? Have a look at verse 4. This is what Jesus says. He says, Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So in that word takes the lowly position in the Greek is humbles him or herself. So the idea here is that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles themselves. It's humility. 
What attribute does Jesus esteem in people higher than any other attribute? Humility. Humility of a child. Now, Jesus singles this out as the most important trait. It's not just a trait. It's not just like patience or gentleness or kindness. It actually becomes the root of all of these other virtues. It actually becomes the central critical virtue for us as children of God. So we're going to look today at what humility is, why it's important, why we so desperately need it, how we can become humble and the difference it makes if we do. And you might be wondering, what makes me qualified to speak on humility? Uh, It's not because I'm a master of humility at all. It's because I'm a master of pride. It's because I know all about pride. In fact, I expect I know more about it than you do. (laughs) And you know what? It takes one to know one, and I can readily see pride in others. You know, I was at Manchester Metropolitan Uni on Tuesday night, and uh, I was giving a talk. And after the talk, this girl came up to share some prayer points. And she had this strange accent, and it took me a while to sort of adjust to it. And then I realised that she was an Australian. (laughs) You know, I forget that I talk like an Australian when I'm around you. I know you hear it, but I don't hear it. And pride is like that. And I know I'm proud because I can see it in other people very quickly, very clearly. I'm not speaking to you as an expert on humility. I'm speaking to you as an expert on pride who knows just what the smallest taste of humility can do in transforming power in someone's life. Like a diabetic who's just had the first hit of insulin or someone who's really dehydrated, uh, tastes a little bit of a drop of water and it flows through their whole body. Here's my attempt at a, 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 a series slide. Okay, there's my graphic design skill for you. Pretty impressive. That's why they don't ask me to do them. But there you go. Needed a title. Humility is what we're talking about today. Why is it important and what is it? We've got to get our definition of humility right. It's very important that we do. If it's the most important trait in the kingdom of heaven, we need to know what it is and understand it rightly. I'll tell you what it isn't. Humility is not good British modesty. Now, I know you British people are very modest, and that's good, but that's not the same thing as humility. There are a lot of good musicians in here, really skillful musicians, and I might talk to one of you and say, so are you good at the cello or whatever instrument you play? And um, this is a conversation I've had a number of times, not necessarily here, and often a response is, well, there's plenty of people who are better than I am at cello. And then you find out not long after that they've won some national award in the instrument. Now that's not necessarily humility, that's modesty. It's a different thing. Humility is much deeper than just an external display uh, of modesty. It's actually a state of our heart. Another thing humility isn't is self-hatred, a low view of self. Humility is very different to that. Now imagine you're in a situation at work where you and your colleagues are all given the same assignment. You're given the same job and there are measurable results for this job. And you see this as an opportunity to stand out amongst your colleagues in pride. You see this as a good opportunity to show yourself off as a really skilled and diligent employee. Now, let's say that the results come back from this work and you've done better than everybody else. Now you have occasion to feel like you're better. You compare and you think you're better than the others around you. What about in the scenario where you actually do worse than everybody else? How do you respond? How do you feel about yourself now? 
You feel rubbish. You feel pathetic. You hate yourself because you weren't up to it. Now, you see that in both cases, the same problem's going on in the heart. It's just the circumstances are different. In one circumstance, pride is at work to make me feel better than others. In the other circumstance, pride is at work to make me feel worse. But in both cases, I'm hinging my identity on my performance, on how other people think of me. I'm being self-centered, you see? So self-hatred is actually a reverse form of pride. Self-hatred is the opposite of humility. Now, what does C.S. Lewis say? Have a look at this. Where, how, do we, how do we see what a humble people look like? He says this, Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Now we're getting closer to a definition of what humility is. It's not self-hatred. It's not self-deprecation. It's not self-anything. Well, if it is self-anything, it's self-forgetfulness. It's not got nothing to do with self at all. And C.S. Lewis has often been quoted as saying, true humility is not thinking of yourself less, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking of yourself at all. He's got a wonderful chapter in Mere Christianity about this uh, and, and about pride. And this is what he says. Now, think about these moments where you're standing out in front of the stars. Or your heart goes out to the needs of someone who's needy and suffering. And at those moments where the glory of the stars or someone's needs draw you out of yourself and you're, you're not thinking of yourself at all, actually at those moments you're completely free. You're completely free to be focused on someone else. When you look at the stars, you're, you're, you're struck by a glory beyond yourself and you forget about yourself. How inappropriate it is at those times when you're looking at the beauty of the Milky Way to be talking about yourself. There's a glory that captures us beyond ourselves and humility is that kind of disposition in us. We're captured by something greater than ourselves. So humility is looking in the negative, looking away from ourselves. What is it in the positive sense? How do we define it? Think about that little child again. We call little children dependents, don't we? We call them dependents because they look to their parents for everything. They need their parents for everything. Now, Cherie and I went to a conference in Liverpool just this last week, and we took our little three-year-old Arwen with us. We didn't tell her where we were going. She didn't even ask. We didn't uh, tell her what she was going to do there. She didn't even ask. She didn't know where we were, what she was going to be doing. She was just glad to be going with mum or dad. Now, she wasn't worried about getting lost or what she would buy there, or how much pocket money she could have to spend. She was just happy to come along with us. She wasn't pulled around by different worries about the day. She just came. She was resting in her mum and dad, their love and their care. And that's what humility is. It's a state of complete dependence. That's what it is. Humility is dependence. It's this childlike attribute that Jesus holds up as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is dependence. It's the state we were created in. Think about it. What did you have that you didn't receive, the Bible says? You were created by God. Everything you have, everything you are, is from him. 
We grow up in, a, in the womb, in our mother's womb, and we come out utterly dependent, and that's really how we are for the rest of life, and we need not to forget it. Everything is from God. He's the giver in everything. We're the receiver in everything. And so the most appropriate state for a human being to be in is humility, is humble. There's no other appropriate state. As soon as we start thinking we're in control, or we're the giver, we're missing the whole point of our lives and what we're created for. So the one who is truly humble delights in the Father's glory, the Father's sufficiency and his goodness, and just lives all of life at rest and enjoyment in that. That's what it means to be humble. So I'd ask you, to what extent do you see the grace of humility in your life? To what extent is your life characterised by that dependence and that freedom that comes from just resting in the Father's control and care and goodness and glory, enjoying his glory, just being free from being driven by yourself or focused on yourself? To what extent is that present in your life? You know, we need to hunger for this and we need to pursue it. Think about this quote from Andrew Murray. He says this, Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature, meaning us. And it's the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. Look not at pride as only an unbecoming temper, nor at humility as only a decent virtue, for the one is death and the other is life. Okay, so we need to love and seek humility and we need to hate pride above all things. We need to see humility as the greatest of freedoms and joys. Think about what we become free from when we're, when we're living this way. We're free from the need to wrap our identity in our appearance or people's opinions of us. We're free from it. We're free from being driven by that. We're free from finding our security in money or possessions because we know our Father in heaven is in control and looks after us. We're f- f- free from being driven by worry or stress. We're free from being driven by performance. We're free from this mood rising and falling depending on how good our circumstances have gone or how high people's opinion is of us. Humility is true freedom. It's a state of heart that puts God at the centre of the universe and we orbit around him. Now, there was this guy, Nicholas Copernicus, in the 1500s, uh, early 1500s. He was a mathematician in Poland. And you might have heard of Copernicus. He took this astronomical data and he realised it didn't work. They believed at the time that the Earth was the centre and everything in the solar system revolved around it. He came up with a different theory and all of a sudden all of the data worked, it fit and that was that the sun was at the centre of the solar system and all the planets revolved around it, the heliocentric theory. And you know what, at the fall when the first sin happened in the world there was this kind of Copernican shift in how people thought, how we thought. God was created, sorry, God created us, get that right, we were created, God created us to be orbiting around him. He was at the centre. But all of a sudden, when sin entered the world, God was shifted, in our minds at least, then we became the centre. All of a sudden, the world revolves around us. That's what sin is. It's a declaration of independence against God. What a tragic thing. We actually start thinking, we don't need God anymore. We don't trust him anymore. I'm looking to myself. What a desperately 
disgraceful and dangerous place to be. The centre of our universe is no longer our creator but ourselves. So that's what sin is. It's a declaration of independence against God. Remember the lie of Satan. You know, um, God, God knows that you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. And so they thought that their happiness could be found in doing what they thought was best. It's a declaration of independence from God. Now, self-centeredness is bondage and slavery and misery. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. One more quote. He writes it so well, I can't avoid quoting him. And he says this, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Lust, anger, greed, drunkenness and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know that God, sorry, God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So well said. And so this is why in our original state of sin, we cannot know God. In our, in our, in our self-centered state, we can't have relationship with God. So we need, desperately need, a saviour, we need change. Have a look at verse 3. And Jesus says this, we've read it a couple of times. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the question then becomes, how do we change? How are we going to change? How are we to become humble? What would be a, uh, one option would be self-effort, self-improvement. Let's work on our humility. Let's get ourselves right. Let's sort ourselves out. Ironically, then we'd have occasion to boast, wouldn't we? You know, Caesar Augustus was perhaps one of the, uh, it will at least in documented history, one of the proudest men you would ever meet. And he wrote 2,500 words uh, called the Res Gestae Divi Augusti, the achievements of the divine Augustus. 2,500 words listing all his accomplishments by topic. And he said this, he writes about honour that up to the present day has been decreed to no one besides myself, given to me by the Senate and the people of Rome on account of my courage, clemency, justice and piety. Augustus thought he was pretty impressive. You know that at the same time that Augustus was around, another king was born in a dirty little stable in a backwater Jewish town in a cattle feed trough, feed trough he was laid and he was the king of kings and he came not to make himself the greatest but to make himself the servant and even to die on a cross the king of kings came unannounced except to shepherds and died on a cross now Jesus is the ultimate example of humility he's the ultimate example it characterised his entire life. Sometimes we struggle to say, how could Jesus, if he knew he was perfect, be humble? If he knows he's perfect, how could he be humble? But this is where our definition of humility helps us. Jesus was completely dependent on the Father in everything. He said, I can't do anything by myself. I can only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what the Father tells me to say. He was completely 
dependent on God. The centre of his orbit was utterly the Father and he revolved his entire life around him. And so he was perfect in humility and he followed the Father's will all the way to the cross. And we're called to have the same humility as that. How on earth are we going to get that? Let's have a look at one of the most central passages on humility in the Bible, Philippians 2, 3 to 9. It says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, just pausing there, the only way you can value others above yourselves is if you're not thinking about yourself. It's not by comparing. It's just because we hopefully have this state of mind where we humble and we're not even thinking about ourselves. Then we can value others above ourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. Now, you might be thinking, rightly, how could I ever have that state of mind? How could I have it? Well, you can't, not by yourself, not by mustering it up in yourself. But there is a way, and that's if Jesus lives in you, if his spirit lives in you and controls you and changes you. And you get that when you're born again. When you put your trust in Jesus, as we saw in the passage of the series of, through John, that everyone who believes in Jesus has the right to become children of God. And when that happens, when you put your trust in Jesus, he, he comes and lives in you. His spirit lives in you. That's what the scripture says. So it's not beyond you anymore if Jesus' spirit lives in you. It says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but what? Christ lives in me. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, Christ lives in you and you now have the freedom and the power in him to live in a humble way, to be humble. It's not by self-improvement, it's by the spirit of Christ living in you and empowering you. And you know, when we have that, when we have... God's spirit living in us, we have Christ living in us, all of a sudden we're free to serve people and serve God in all kinds of ways. Have a look at verse 5. And Jesus says this, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And so if we're thinking this way, if we have this mindset of Jesus who lives in us, then all of a sudden no one is too small to serve. No one is too insignificant. And no task is too insignificant for me to engage in to bring honour to Jesus because that's my delight, you see? And so if we have this humble state of mind, all of a sudden we become ready to love people, ready to give ourselves away, ready to lay down our lives because we just delight in serving Jesus. We want to bring honour to him. That's our joy. And so if you haven't trusted in Jesus, here's the good news, is that Jesus came to die so that you could be free from bondage to self, how I know well what that bondage to self is like. How I know well how all my childhood and teenage years I was trying to establish my identity in the things I did well and trying to prove to myself and others that I was an exceptional person. 
And it's only since coming to know Jesus that I begin to realise slowly that I'm far less exceptional than I thought and my joy is found in Christ. My joy is found away from myself and my future and my hope is found away from myself. So this is the good news of the gospel of what Jesus offers you. You don't need to worry about the future anymore if you put your trust in Jesus because he's prepared a home for you in heaven and you don't need to strive to prove yourself because Jesus will make you perfect in God's sight. You don't need to overwork because Jesus said it is finished and you can smell the flowers instead of asking how much the land costs. You can start living as you're created to live. So humble yourself and come to Jesus. The only way to come is as a child, dependent on his mercy. We sing this hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's how we're to come to Jesus. If you do that, you'll know true freedom. Now, if you've experienced Christ as your saviour, you know Christ as your saviour, my encouragement to you is to think about what does growing in maturity in the Christian life look like? Now, we're all on this journey together. None of us have arrived. But what does growing in maturity in the Christian faith look like? It actually looks like growing in dependence. It's actually the very opposite to how we grow physically. You think about little Jennifer, who came up the front before. And um, I know Mark, Mark and Annie, one day, where are Mark and Annie? One day, they want Jennifer to grow up and leave home and to become an independent human being. Not in a hurry, not in too much of a hurry. But one day, that she would go and make a living and get a house or you know, go out there and carve her own way in the world, maybe have a family and all of these things, that's healthy, to actually grow in independence from her mum and dad. That's healthy. But spiritually, actually, it's the very opposite. The most mature believer in Christ is the one who actually has learnt to depend on him in, and look to him in every situation. Even in the smallest things, to look to him in prayer, to look to him in dependence or in thankfulness. That actually the most mature person in Christ is the one who is constantly dependent on Jesus, looking to him in everything, like the most dependent child. Going back again and again to his grace, for his grace, his forgiveness, his wisdom, his guidance, his strength, all of his resources. Think about these pictures. The mightiest tree that you've seen has the deepest roots in the ground, doesn't it? Or the tallest skyscraper has the deepest foundations. Or the same thing with the, in spiritual sense. What does the word say? Humble yourself and God will lift you up. The one who's humbled him or herself the most is the one who God will exalt the most. So, five practical points about humility. Okay, so we'll get a little bit practical now. In our last section here. What are some practical things? One is, uh, be honest and confess your sins to one another. Okay? It's, sometimes it's easy enough to pray to God and confess our sins to him, but actually it becomes a real difficult act of humility to do it in front of others. Right? But this is what true Christian community looks like. I'm not saying you pour out everything indiscriminately. Um, you need to think about how and what you're going to share, but it is a really life-giving thing for us, a freeing thing and a humbling thing for us to confess our sins to one another. Pride breeds in the dark on its own, but it's broken when we confess our sin to one another. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? The tax collector who confessed his sins went home right with God. The proud Pharisee didn't. It says in Psalm 28, 25, 
8 and 9 and 14. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. So God is near and it says somewhere else, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him, with those who are humble and look to him and esteem him. God's close. You think to the humble. Think about um, water that flows downhill. When you, um, you know, climb mountains, sometimes you, you see a tarn, you see a lake where all the water gathers. Lakes gather where the ground is lowest, don't they? And grace flows downhill as well. God's grace comes to the humble, to the ones who have lowered themselves the most. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the hum, hum, humble. So I'd ask you, how red, re, readily do you open up your, about your sins in community, in your life groups, in, in relationships with people? Are you willing to share of your struggles? That's one important step. Second one is this. Be content to work and rest within the boundaries that God gives you as a human being. He's given you sleep. He's given you a rhythm where you can enjoy a day of rest a week, not as a law, but as a gift, to stop working. The point here is there's nothing godly about getting not enough sleep or overworking. There's nothing godly about not sleeping enough. This usually comes from where? It comes from being driven by something, some other kind of motivation to prove ourselves or advance or rely on ourselves or worry. So to what extent are you characterised by overwork or stress? Maybe that's a uh, picture of maybe what uh, a lack of dependence on God, a lack of enjoyment in the fact that he's in control. Maybe pride has taken root in some way. So consider where that's coming from in your heart if you're overworked or overstressed and focused on all of your struggles and problems. Then I would say that you're not looking independence enough to the Father. You know, William Wilberforce was a highly gifted man. We all know that um, the things that he did were amazing in terms of abolishing slavery. And Wilberforce uh, was tempted by his ego to seek advancement, you know, cabinet positions and all this stuff. But after a week of furious work, one day he took a day of rest and he wrote this in his journal, Blessed be God for the day of rest and religious occupations wherein earthly things assume their true size and ambition is stunted. So my pursuits and all my things about me, all of a sudden I look to God and I realise how small they really are and it kills my ambition and it puts me back in the place where I know that I'm made to be, God being at the centre. So there's a connection here, isn't there, between rest and pride. One is a check to the other. And when we rest, we're reminded of a few things. We're reminded that the world keeps ticking on without us. We're reminded that God actually doesn't need you. It's important to remember, he doesn't need me or you. He loves us, but he doesn't need us, and that's important. And that maybe we're a lot smaller than we thought we were in the big scheme of things, and actually that's a freeing thing. That's a freeing thing. So take your rest and enjoy the things God has given you to enjoy. Relationships, the beauty of nature, food, all of these things, a movie, friends, all of this is created for us to enjoy and give glory to God for all of it. Okay, number three, don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> learn to laugh and learn to laugh at yourself. This took me a long, long time. I'm probably still learning. I'm sure at staff meeting someone will have a jibe at me and I'll probably respond in a proud way initially. But it's a freeing thing to learn to laugh at yourself. And this is uh, a guy called Terry Linwall writes this. 
Laughter is a divine gift to the human who is humble. A proud man cannot laugh because he, because he much, must watch his dignity. He cannot give himself over to the rocking and rolling of his belly. But a poor and happy man laughs heartily because he, has, he gives no serious attention to his ego. Only the truly humble belong to this kingdom of divine laughter. Humor and humility should keep good company. Self-deprecating humor can be a healthy reminder that we are not the center of the universe, that humility is our proper, proper posture before our fellow humans as well as before Almighty God. So can you laugh at yourself? That's uh, something we can practice. Number four is that we need to learn to see setbacks and interruptions as God's good and gracious way of cultivating the joy and freedom of humility in our lives. Now, this is a pretty difficult thing to do in the moment, isn't it? One of my worst injuries was a, a nasty ankle injury. Uh, I could actually hear it rip. It, it was a basketball trials, and I invested all of my life for those few months in making this regional basketball team. And, uh, you know, I, I felt hopeful. And there were three games that day, three matches, and after the first match, we were warming up for the second, and I jumped off somebody's foot, stepped on somebody's foot with all my weight as I was jumping. My ankle ripped, went down, and I was out for weeks and weeks. And obviously, I didn't make the team. Now, at the time, I struggled with it, struggled with the reality of that. Now, looking back, it's easy for me to see what God was doing. He was actually drawing me away from staking my life and my identity on all these achievements and basketball or whatever else. And it was a slow process of making me realise that what I really needed was him. Now, we can look back, can't we, on hardships in our life and be thankful for them. But what about right now? What setbacks and hardships are you experiencing right now? And what's your response to those? Now, if we see these as problems that... Uh, uh, maybe are stripping you of joy or if we hate them we want to eradicate them from our lives we may be missing God's good and gracious purposes in our lives to cultivate humility in us and a greater dependence on him how did Paul respond he found it hard too but he learned to embrace it he even learned to delight in it have a look at 2 Corinthians 12 verses 8 to 10 Paul was given something not exactly sure what it was, um, that really hindered him, that caused him to struggle. It tormented him. Don't know what it, what, what it was. Some people think it was terrible eyesight. Some people think it was some spiritual attack. We're not really sure. But he said this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, because when I am weak, then I am strong. We need to learn, by God's grace, to think the same way about all of our hardships, God has a bigger plan for you in your life than just a convenient, happy existence in this world. He wants you to know the glory of knowing him and depending on him and loving him and being swept up in his glory and purposes and being free from yourself. Last point, and that is, and this I'm preaching to myself here more than any of you, and that is to talk less and pray more and listen more. 
And the irony of pride that the fool is the one who has the most words. And the wise person often listens the best. Now, beware of our present danger, especially in our culture. It seems that we all want to publish everything about our lives, whether it be on social media or talking about ourselves. Is that there's a dangerous tendency, isn't there, that we want everyone to know about everything that's going on in our lives, and I think it's dangerous. Um, it says in Ecclesiastes 5.2, God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. Now, we don't need to publish our whole life and our activities. So consider first what you say. I'm preaching to myself. Consider what you post on Facebook and ask the question, why? What's going on in my heart? And what the world needs more of is Jesus, not me. Okay? Now, Jesus will use you and me, but what the world needs more of is him. So let's be radically Christ-centered, Christ-delighting people. Let's be humble people by his grace. And then... What the world can hear will effectively be instruments in his hands to be heralds of this good news of Jesus to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you've shown us a wonderful example in your son of perfect humility. Uh, how, how far we fall short of that example and how impossible it is for us to, to copy that. But thank you so much that you have made a way in Jesus in dying on the cross, in rising again, in conquering sin and death to free us uh, from ourselves. That you have given us, uh, you've made us participants in the divine nature, it even says in your word, that we might have you living in us through faith, that you bring about this humility in us. May that be true more and more of all of us, how we need it. How none of us can say that we are a long way toward mastering it. Uh, we ask for your grace. Lord, thank you for the freedom you give us from ourselves. Uh, we pray that our lives would more and more reflect this dependence on you, this delight in your sufficiency, uh, a childlike enjoyment and satisfaction in your love and in your glory and in your all-sufficiency. So, Lord, help us to live as your renewed children once again. And may the world see the freedom that we enjoy in Christ pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.